Well, dear congregation, dear friends, I would ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to that passage of God's holy word that I read to you in your hearing. For a good long while now, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and we arrive this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the verse 17. We arrive in verse 17, and I want us to consider just a few verses this evening, particularly the verse 17 to the verse 19, but we'll be touching on a few verses after that as the Apostle Paul draws near to the ordinance that he had received of the Lord, that ordinance of the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. But I want us to consider the subject that he has before us. And we could write over, I suppose, these words, problems, difficulties, divisions, factions, schisms within the church, all those words synonymous to trouble. How, why did troubles come? The Lord permits them. Of course, the church is pictured there in Isaiah 54 as a noble galleon, as a ship passing through troubled waters. Her bulwarks will suffer blow after blow. But that ship will reach its haven. It is the temple of God. Perhaps doesn't look like it now. But there in Isaiah, chapter 54, we have a wonderful picture. How she is battered by every wave of difficulty. We know that even Satan will come and assail the church. But in the end, the church is pictured as Zion, the city of the living God decked with great ornaments, decked with the finest of jewels. Of course, it is precious, precious in the eyes of the Lord, and it will be a fortress where there will be no trouble to come in to the people of God. We read in the book of the Revelation, don't we? How nothing shall ever enter in and defile one day the temple of God. As God's people one day will finally be with Christ in his immediate presence and he will tabernacle with us. We long for that day of the marriage supper of the Lamb when we shall see our bridegroom with our eyes, when this body shall have put on immortality. Well, we long for that day, but until then, it must needs be, as the Apostle will tell us here, and we'll consider that there be divisions. And uh, we need to understand this. It's not that God uh, wills. There's a sense in which it is decreed that there should be divisions. And we need to make very clear tonight, we're dealing with two. It's not that God has two wills, but there's two sides to it. God has one will. He's of one mind. But there is the decretive will, is that God has decreed that there should be divisions. But God's will is that we should be united. I hope to unpack that. We should be united. We should seek to earnestly, as Paul will tell us in Ephesians 4, to seek to keep the unity of the peace within the church. But God has decreed that there will be Divisions that there will be difficulties, not essentially amongst the membership, but there will come schisms, there will come difficulties. 
in the church. So there is what God has decreed in terms of his will, but then there is, of course, God's desire. And that God's desire is that there should be a people united. And often, sadly, it will be a remnant. It will be just a few that will be united. Remember in Malachi, we are told there were those that feared the Lord, and then there were those that did not fear the Lord. And one day it will be fully manifest. Who are the Lord's? The Lord's people. We pick up here in verse 16, as I said, we're going to look this evening at verse 17 to the verse 19. I read from verse 16 just to pick up on the context. I'll remind us what we considered very briefly last Tuesday. Here in verse 16 we read, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom. Neither the churches of God. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, once again, the context of these verses, and I'm going to give the context, and certainly by way of review as well, as we consider the context, and then we'll fully more understand what Paul is saying. You remember in verses 1 to 15 last Tuesday, we considered this subject and matter of headship and head covering. How men must never cover their heads when we come into worship. We take our hats off and we put them aside. And that is because we would dishonor Christ, who is our head. And in like manner, the woman must keep their heads covered. Because the head of every man is Christ, of course, but the head of every woman is the husband. It's not that... that that the wife is not subject to Christ. She is subject to Christ. We must understand that. But her immediate head here in this world as a Christian woman is to her husband, and she must show proper respect. It's not that she's not under any authority of Christ. The man, of course, himself is under the authority of Christ. But she herself must show due reverence and respect for her husband. So that even if she asks a question, she must ask even at home, not publicly shaming her husband or bringing any reproach upon him, but giving him that rightful place of authority. Again, it's not about equality. We are all made in the image of God, but it is about a God-given authority, isn't it? The man has the authority in the sense that he, he really is the decision-maker. It's not that she's not involved in the decision-making, but really he is the head of the home, and he is to lead and he is to guide the wife, certainly by the Word of God. That's the rule for the family, isn't it? The Word of God. Now, they are to do this. The men are to uncover their heads. No hats, 
Ladies, you must cover your heads because this is a clear principle as we thought. This has nothing to do with cultural relevance, but this has to do with honoring because he, he used the illustration, didn't he? That the head of Christ is God the Father. And so that principle follows. The head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is the husband. And we saw those three things. And then we looked at seven, if you remember, seven reasons as to why this uh, head covering is to take place in the church. He reasons all these things out from the verse 4 all the way through to the verse 14. Let's just briefly look at them. I won't cover them in any extent. You can listen to the sermon last week if you didn't hear it. Firstly, verse 4, it's dishonoring to Christ for men to cover their heads in public worship. Why? Of course, Christ is on high. And he is sat now at the right hand of the majesty of God. Of course, he is abiding by his spirit in the church. But the man is head over the woman. As Christ, the father is head over Christ in terms of authority. They're equal, co-equal, co-eternal. Father and son are co-equal. We believe, of course, very clearly the, the Bible teaches first John 5, 7, there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit. These three are one, we are told. But it's dishonoring for a man to cover his head. That's the first reason we see it in verse 4. Then secondly, look, notice verse 5. It's dishonoring to men for women to uncover their heads. Ladies, you'll be dishonoring your husband who has been given the right of authority in your marriage union. Thirdly, it's a shame for a woman to be uncovered, even to have short hair. Now, I said some woman, maybe there's an illness or it's difficulty, but, well, she must nonetheless put on a head covering like the other ladies. Well, if she doesn't wear a head covering... She may as well be a man. She may as well be shorn. She may as well try and be a man. We see so much of that today. So many ladies try to be like men. That's wrong. Then fourthly, we saw because of the order of the sexes. Verse 9. We see that very carefully there. Man came first. And then the woman came from man. It's very clear. Man did not come from woman. Although now, of course, men are born of woman, but who came first? It was Adam first, and then Eve. And then fifthly, we saw for the sake of the angels. Verse 10. You see that there once again? For the sake of the angels. We can offend the angels because they observe our worship, even from heaven. They look down upon us, as it were, from heaven, and they observe all that is, that is done in our gatherings and we can offend them because we have no regard for the word of Christ. No regard even, no regard for that proper relationship between man and woman. That biblical headship. And they can easily be offended. It's nothing to do with culture. But clearly the angels are outside of time. Completely outside of time and 
we must honor. Heaven, we worship with heaven together. We're told this in Hebrews 12. When we come together, we come not to Mount Sinai, but we come to Mount Zion, we're told, the city of the living God, where there are an innumerable company of angels, Paul tells us. In heaven, when we worship, we praise with the redeemed church, heaven and earth, and we praise God, and we can easily offend the angelic beings. Then we thought, sixthly, another reason is, he says, judge for yourselves. Verse 13, judge in yourselves. Is it not comely? Is it not apposite? Is it not becoming? Is it not appropriate? Or is it appropriate that if a, a woman pray to God uncovered, does it look right? Ask yourself, he says, what is most appropriate? What is obvious should be obvious. It's wrong. When a woman tries to take charge, it's not right. But it's so much like the world today, isn't it? When the world comes into our church worship or comes and uh, comes to our homes, they should see a difference. The husband's not a bully. He's not a thug. He's a gentleman in the proper sense. He's not barking orders to his wife. But there's a proper due reverence and respect. Well, and in the same manner, she must wear this symbol that is a wonderful symbol, especially in this day and age. How much more when the rise of feminism and the rise of effeminism amongst men is so rife. We see men, I'm sad to say, dressing like pansies. It's sad. Men should be men. Women should be women. And then he says, seventhly, nature itself, verse 14. It's a shame. It's a shame if a man hath long hair. What does he say there? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. It's a shame. He says, nature itself should testify to you that a man, if he tries to dress like a woman, and certainly men, if you wear hats in church, you're just being ladylike. There's nothing macho about it. There's nothing manly about it. You're just being like a lady. It's not good. And this includes clothing as well. We have a verse in Deuteronomy 22, 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. If a woman wears manly clothes, the Bible condemns it. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. Ladies, you wouldn't like it if men came here, and I don't mean to be funny, but you'd think it's a bizarre thing if men put on dresses. It's, it's unbecoming. This is, should never be the case. So the, the clothing should distinguish between the sexes, especially in this day. Now, again, friends, I'm not trying to be entertaining. Far from it. But this is a serious problem. This seriously is a problem in our day and age. And we should seek to keep the differences very clear as much as is possible. 
Now, what does Paul say after at the end of these seven arguments for head covering? But if, verse 16, if any man seemed to be contentious, wants to contend against this, we have no such custom. Neither the churches of God. And it's this word. He's saying, basically, let that man know, if any man who is of a contentious spirit over these matters, these things that I've declared about the angels, about nature, about everything, let this man know that we have no other practice in all the churches. In other words, this was manifestly clear that this was practiced right now in all of the churches. That's what was being done. And this is the order given by the word of God. Let this man know that we have no such custom, no such teaching. Now he picks up, you notice, on that word, as we come to verse 17 and following, he picks up on this point about schisms, about this man that might have, have a, a different view. The, the, he picks up upon this point of schisms, divisions in the church. And if you notice, verse 17 actually begins on a very negative note, but it's, it's important that it's there, because this church at Corinth failed to do some necessary things when they came to the Lord's table. They were not observing what Paul had previously commanded them to do. Now notice with me, particularly here when it comes to the Lord's table or the Lord's supper. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. So this is very negative. He's saying, I, I'm not praising you now. That ye come together... Now, it's that little phrase there that we see that ye come together. What does he mean about this coming together? Well, as you'll see in the verse 20, it's coming together for the Lord's Supper. Notice as we read that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And first of all, there's a there's disagreement, there's disunity, there's disharmony about what they should be doing. And he says, and I partly believe it. For, verse 19, there must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now notice again, he picks up on this word, follows the thread here, verse 20 from verse 17, about this coming together. Coming together to do what? When ye come together, verse 20, therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, they are going to eat the Lord's Supper, but here's an important principle. Just because the bread and the wine are there and people are sitting down, it's almost as if the Lord has rejected it, what they are doing. And I want to say this, we reject both the Catholic view that Christ, the bread actually becomes the body and the fruit of the vine becomes his blood. We reject that, which we call tra uh, transubstantiation. There's a transformation. Just because uh, the bread is there and the priest has 
said a few things and so-called blessed it. And we reject also Lutherism, where it's because you simply have the bread there and the wine that Christ is actually present. We reject that in that sense, because there is a sense in which it can be even said of the Laodicean church, Christ says, behold, I knock at the door. It's as if Christ is outside. He is there. But there's a sense in which the Spirit of God has been grieved. You can have the elements. You can have the Lutheran idea, I suppose, where you've got the bread and the, the wine and Christ is literally present. But not always. Because if there is rank disregard for God's word, there's a sense in which he's absent. And his blessing is not upon the church. As we said when we came to chapter 10, we are to be discerning the body of Christ. We are to discern God's will. We are to walk in pleasing to God. That is the essential thing. That's the main thing. We are to honor Christ. And we are to honor, as we will see tonight, he has to admonish the church here. Because he says, do you despise the church? That's what they were doing. They were despising the church. When they came together, look at verse 22. What have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God? And this is the main argument upon which the Apostle Paul hinges everything. There was a disregard for Christ and a disregard for the church. There wasn't a proper respect for Christ. People were coming and not waiting for one another. People had already arrived. And some were even getting drunk. There was no regard for the poor. There was no waiting for people to eat. Some people were very poor. And of course, they ate meals together. And they met the Lord's table, but there was no love. No love to each other. And this is why he says, as we read, tarry ye for one another. Wait for one another, even when you sit down and you eat a meal. Now, when I grew up, it was always good manners. My parents taught me. You wait for other people to get their food and then you eat. Somebody may be late. You eat together. It's the same with the Lord's table. We wait for one another and then we eat together. It's showing proper respect, proper regard for one another. Now, we'll unpack these things here tonight. And so he begins on a negative point here. Because he says in verse 21, For in eating, everyone taketh before his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. You're not acting in love. It should be even at the table. My wife and I, when we sit down, we wait for each other to sit down. It should be in your home. You wait for each other. It's just showing right decorum, right practice, 
You sit down, you wait together. Same with the Lord's table, supper. It's showing a right love, a proper regard, but above all to Christ, who is head over us all. So we'll see these things here tonight with the Lord's help. And then you notice, if you look at verse 23, following what he says in verse 22, and the admonition there, what have ye no houses to eat in, drink in, or despise ye, or the word there, despise, as we'll see tonight, means to think little. Do you think little of the church of God? And shame them that have not. The people that have not a lot of money. They're working late, they come in, and you've already gobbled all the food. And you started at the Lord's table, and in fact, some of you are drunk. This is wrong. What shall I say unto you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. It says strong admonition. Now notice 4, verse 23. Because I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you. And then he goes on to give the teaching. He says, I, I've already delivered it unto you. I've taught you before. When? He was there for 18 months, wasn't he? Acts 18. 18 months he taught this church. But this church, as we know, is full of schisms, full of pride. No love. That's why he will go on in 1 Corinthians 13 to speak about the greatest gift. You Corinthians ought to, to be seeking, you ought to be coveting this greatest gift. What is the great gift? Love for one another. Love for Christ. That's what you ought to be doing. You ought to have a proper love, a proper regard. You see, being a Christian, we learn to think about others. We especially learn to think about Christ. The good manners, you know, it should come from a heart that is changed, from a heart that loves God and loves God's people. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the necessity of divisions. The necessity of divisions. Notice in verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies. A heresy, of course, is a false teaching or false practice among you, that they which may be approved may be made manifest among you. So we see, first of all, the necessity of divisions. As we said earlier, there should be, and this is right, we think here of the necessity of divisions. There should be in every Christian, and I'm sure it's true here tonight, that there is a, a right and a proper desire for there to be unity in the church. But you can't have unity at the expense of truth, can you? You can't. But it, it's only right, it's only proper, that there should be church unity. But we're reminded, if you just turn with me, to Ephesians chapter 4, a few times in the scriptures that we need to 
endeavor to seek to keep that unity. There is unity by the Spirit of God. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's by the Spirit that we're baptized and brought into the church of God and we're made to be members one of another. But within the body of Christ, Ephesians 1, 4, 1, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation or the calling wherewith ye are called. Of course, we're called by grace, aren't we? Saved by grace and called to walk worthy. And how do we do it? And how should we walk? Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness. If we don't have a meek spirit, if we are not teachable, if we're proud, if we're haughty, it's not going to be possible. Blessed are the meek. They will be taught. Now notice, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity. So the unity is there of the Spirit. It's the Spirit. If we have the Spirit of God and if we're obeying the Spirit of God, and particularly obeying the Word of God, which is given by the Spirit of God, there will be unity. You see that? You don't try to make unity in the church superficially. It can't be done any other way but through the Word. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3, no, of course they can't. We have to be agreed in the Word. And we have to be at one in the word. Now you notice there are seven ones there from verse 4 and 5. Seven ones that make for unity. There's one body. What is that body? It's the church. It's the body of Christ. It's his bride. There aren't two churches. There isn't Israel and the church. There's the church. Within Israel was a corpus of people the church existed in Genesis chapter 4 when men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Church existed long before Jacob, long before Israel, and of course within Israel were true members of the church. Even Stephen tells us this in, doesn't he? He says in Acts 7 verse 38, the church of God which was in the wilderness. He tells us this is he. Even speaking of Moses, who was in the church, in the wilderness, in the Old Testament, so it existed. There were true, born-again believers. David, who had the Spirit of God, and so on. One body and one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. What's the hope? Christ in you, the hope of glory. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. You notice we have the Trinity there. There's one Spirit, one Lord. The word there is the word kurios for Christ. And one Father. We have the Trinity. And all of these ones, one faith, it's faith in Christ, and one baptism, one kind of baptism. What is that? Believer's baptism. So all of these things. But sometimes false teachers will come in the church with heresies. There were, as he says here, heresies. There's divisions. 
Something was awry, something was amiss here at Corinth. And this is true. One thing that false teachers do is they dumb down the church and they dumb down the word of God. Jude reminds us in Jude 3, he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. The faith and the doctrine of that faith has been delivered unto the saints. He says, now you must earnestly contend for it. But he said, but there are certain men crept in unawares. Error can creep in unawares to us, subtly, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. God even determined it. Why? It must needs be that there be heresies. So those who are the Lord's are manifest. Those who were approved of God, as we've read. There are many, as he says here, who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness or lawlessness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus, denying him as Lord. In the same manner and in the same vein, the Apostle Paul, he, he wrote to the Galatian church and he said, Who did bewitch you? There were false teachers that came in to the church of Galatia. And no doubt even some here at Corinth who were opposing Paul as an apostle. He said, who did it bewitch you? They were those who were sowing pernicious doctrine, bringing upon men somehow foolishly the necessity of circumcision, where it's not required at all now. For God requires circumcision of the heart, which is what he does. But oftentimes, and it's true, as I said, doctrine is, is brought in. It was brought in rather blazonly there at Galatia. Men just came in, tried to overthrow. But often, as Peter tells us, that men can bring in error privily, subtly, with stealth. Second Peter 2, 1, we read, But there were false teachers also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresy. Sometimes you don't see it. It's so subtle, they mix truth with error. And there's great danger. We have to be very careful. That's why we need to hold tenaciously to the word of God. That's why the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, preach the word. Not the doctrines of men, but preach the word. Preach the doctrine that I gave you. And entrust faithful men with the same. How important is that? Very important. So the word there, privily, secretly or undercover. Yes, that's very true. And I and any elder is called to be a watchman. We have those words, don't we, in Ezekiel 33. It's a warning to ministers to be watchmen and to sound the trumpet of God's word if there be any error that comes in. If we fail to do it, we have blood on our hands. We'll have to give an account. James says, many not 
seek to be masters, for greater condemnation will be upon the minister. I know sometimes I say things that you may not like, but we have to preach the word of God. Ezekiel 33, 6, we read, But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take away any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Very solemn for me. If I see a sin, if I see an error, if I see a danger coming, to this little flock, and I do not warn, blood will be required at my hand. Solemn. We are watchmen. Paul, when he writes to the Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, he speaks of those who rule in the church. He says to the believers then, he says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. Some people say, well, in the New Testament, you don't have watchmen. Well, that's a flat denial of the Scripture. Paul says, those who rule, watch for your souls. This is why the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, when he was bidding well, farewell to the elders at Miletus, and he told them how he ministered there for a space of three years from house to house, preaching the whole counsel of God. He, he said, now behold, I know that all of you among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom shall see my face no more. Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. That principle followed. Paul understood that he could have had blood on his hands if he didn't warn. So we see, first of all here, the necessity of division, so that those who are manifest, those who were approved of the Lord, may be made manifest to the church. You teach truth, and the sheep will hear the truth. They will not follow another. But the sheep can be deceived from time to time. That's true. I'm sure we all have, at one point, been deceived. The church at Corinth had, it seems, or said, I've already delivered these things unto you. That which I did have received of the Lord, I delivered unto you. But what's gone wrong? Something's gone wrong at Corinth. Things aren't right. There were... Heresies, he says. There were divisions. He says, I believe it. He heard the rumors, remember, from Chloe's house. Remember, the delegation of men came to him. And even now, Apollos, we're told in chapter 16, is with him and refusing to go to the church for some reason. We don't know why. There were divisions. It is easy. For error to creep in, isn't it? And we must watch and pray. In chapter 5, remember how he addressed the matter of the man at the Lord's table. And they should not have allowed that man that was having this relationship with his father's wife. And he said, a little leaven 
What did he say? Leaveneth the whole lump. In other words, sin could get worse. You tolerate this. You tolerate this error. The table ought to be that place of purity and sincerity. He said to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 7, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should obey not the truth? You see, error can creep in. They did well, but now they're falling. The leaven of sin increases and can increase to more ungodliness in the church. You let a principle slip, other principles slip. People think, oh, this isn't serious. We don't have to be serious on this point. Well, then you see another thing slip, don't you? Another reason why there must be these dealings is that true teachers should be appreciated. We read here of those that those who are proved, it says, may be made manifest unto you. And you pray for those men. It's important, isn't it? But something else, divisions undermine stability in the church. Some people might have been thinking here, Paul, you're overreacting a little bit about the Lord's table, about the way in which some people maybe are getting drunk. No, I think it's a serious thing. It was showing a wrong spirit in some of these people being gluttons, not waiting, getting drunk. It's not right. And then coming to the Lord's table without feeling to brothers and sisters, realizing, you know, what if Christ came? Could you imagine it? Could you imagine if Christ had to come? Of course he hasn't. And this can happen at any time because we don't know when Christ is coming. If he actually came at such a time, what a terrible thing that would be. If we were drunk and if we had made an utter pig of ourselves and we didn't care for the church, we're going to think this evening, as he says here, or do you despise the church? Do you think so little of the church? Who are these people? They are the blood-bought children of God. And we better think about them. We better put them first, not ourselves. That's who they are. Another reason why this is such an important thing, because if the church doesn't have unity, and there must be unity, it has no strength. Think of it. The words there of our Lord Jesus in Mark 3, 25. He says, A house, if it should be divided against itself, it cannot stand. A church can't stand. It's got no strength if there is division. But if there's division, and that's good sometimes, error gets pushed out, doesn't it? Error must make way for truth. And truth ejected, and a wrong spirit ejected and dealt with. Another reason there must be divisions is because, and sadly, you, you have this today in so many churches, and they just say, well, peace, 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 when there, then there can be no peace. And you hear people saying, well, just 
Put your disagreements aside. Well, there's a place for that. There are some things we have to let rest. But there are things that we can't let rest. Principal things. There can be no peace in a church where error is tolerated. That is why divisions are necessary. That's why schisms are necessary. It's not a bad thing, essentially. The will should be that there should be unity. But if there is division, and don't get depressed on division all the time, because thank God some people are standing for something. Thank the Lord for it. That some people have the temerity and the backbone to do so. But in some places, the church is spineless. And anything goes. And the Lord is not pleased to be there. Think of those words there in Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of the garments. That, that picture of the oil dripping down was symbolic of the spirit of God's presence upon Aaron, the high priest. As the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. You know, there can be no real peace if we have grieved the Holy Spirit. Can be no peace, no real presence of Christ. But also, there's no joy but enmity if there are no divisions. And as I say, when there's a division, Matters are dealt with, aren't they? But there can be no joy, but only enmity, continued enmity, because people shove things under the carpet, don't say anything, and that's why it's wrong. You know, the scriptures say, if thy brother sinneth against thee, go and tell him his fault. And if he hears thee, thou hast won him, thou hast gained thy brother. But of course, if he hear thee not, you go and tell another. And then if he doesn't hear, you tell the church and so on. That's in, on a personal level. But Paul had to say to the Galatians in Galatians 4.16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? But that's the attitude of some people. You're my enemy now because you're opposing me. No. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. The church sometimes has to deal with things. We have to deal with personal things. But something else, that if things aren't dealt with, and it must needs be that there be schisms, that there be these divisions, because Satan will gain a foothold. If error is tolerated, and truth is somehow shoved under the carpet, and people's Mouths are muzzled. It's a terrible thing. Satan then has a foothold in the church. And what he will reap is envying and strife. And we're told in James 3.13, For where there is envying and strife, there is confusion and every evil work. You don't want a church, I trust, where there's confusion. 
The pastor preaches one thing, we do another thing, the church is confused. And there's envy. And there's upset. Things must be dealt with. Our mannerism, our attitude to Christ, our attitude to the church. And therefore he says in verse 20, When ye come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You're not doing it right. You've grieved God. So essential. And you notice, he says there, in verse 21, For in eating one taketh before his own supper, and the other is hungry, another is drunken. What have ye now? Not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God? Some are, he goes on to speak about some who were poor and so on. There's no waiting on other people. They had fellowship lunches as we do. And there was no respect. People were behaving like pigs. Don't mean to be crude. And wine bibbers. That's not the mannerism of God's people. Don't you have a home to eat in? Or do you, he says, do you despise the church of God? Now the word here, despise, means, as we'll see now in Hebrews, means to think little. Little of. Look at Hebrews 12.5. Please, Hebrews 12.5. And we're told here about being corrected, about being chastened, and how we're not to think little of the Lord's chastening. And we read, And have ye forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children? My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And I think it's appropriate that I open this up, where he says, first of all, we have two tendencies. When the Lord chastens his children, and he only chastens his children, we can, we, we can fall into one of two areas of problem. One is to think little of the Lord's chastening. We ought to think much of it, because God is telling us how much he loves us. He loves us enough to correct us. Don't despise the chasing of the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. But stop, take notice of it, and do something about it. Don't just sit back and say, oh, God's chasing me again. But Johnny will do something about it. Change your attitude. Change your life. The other thing we can be guilty of, notice, or... Notice, we can become downcast, nor faint when thou art rebuked. We can become faint. Maybe even perhaps lose our assurance. Weary. No, don't be weary. Why? He says, because God chastens you for your good. And ultimately, you are partakers, he says, of his holiness. He's called you to be holy. Thank God he has. I want to close with just a few things. Here where he says to the church, despise all, despise ye the church of God. 
The first thing we can do is we can despise Christ. First of all, at any time. First of all, we would say our bodies, our souls and our bodies, our whole being was bought at a price. At such a tremendous price. The Son of God took to himself bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh, and then went to the cross to die for our sins so that he would come and live in us, so that we would honor his spirit now that dwells in our soul, so that we would honor him in the life. We are his, Paul's told us in 1 Corinthians 6, know you not that your body is not your own, you were bought at a price. So everything you do, whether you eat, whether you drink, he told us in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, you do to the glory of God. You're not your own. Think about everything you do. From the rising up in the morning, you are Christ's. Don't despise him. Highly value Christ. And then furthermore, highly value his church. He says here, or despise ye the church of God. Who are the church of God? Not everybody that comes on the Lord's Day. Not everybody in the congregation is part of that church. They may come to church, but those who have been born again, who have professed faith and are showing evidence of the Spirit's work in them, who are repenting daily of their sins and who are trusting wholly in the merits of Christ and who have joined themselves to the body of the church and who are accountable to the church. Acts 2 verse 42 and verse 44. They that gladly received the word were baptized and added to the church. That's the church. God's people. And who break bread together. Do you despise them? Do you think so little of them? Error cannot be tolerated. Sin cannot be tolerated in our life. We are told here in this chapter that every man must examine himself. Examine his attitude toward his brother and sister in the Lord. Examine his whole approach, not just to the Lord's table, but his whole approach to life. Who am I living for? Whose am I? Where am I going? Do I sideline the truth? Do I jettison the truth? The truth is everything. Why should we honor the church? Because it is the house of God. It's where he is pleased to dwell. Why should we honor the church? The opposite of despise, of course, is to honor. Secondly, it's the bride of Christ. Your brother, your sister, who you talk to, will have no coarse jesting, will have no foul language, I hope ever, 
no unkind thoughts, but sincerity and love, bowels of mercy. Why? Because they, were, they are the Lord's, and he loves them, and you better love them, and you'll spend all eternity with them. And those very people were purchased with his blood, and one day you will be with them in heaven. Terrible thing, isn't it? And I know we will be perfected in that day. To have a thought. There's so many things we regretted to do. and so many things we did do. But we did despise God's people, or we thought little of. Let us think much of each other. Let us consider one another how we might provoke one another unto love and good works. Let us examine that we are the Lord's. We were bought at a price to do the church good, to edify one another, to strengthen one another, and to be above all an example to others. Well, we are the Lord's. If we are the Lord's, we'll show the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. Let us tarry for one another. Let us show good manners at the table when we eat our food in fellowship. Let us wait for one another, and especially at the table. That's why we wait for it. Don't just do it at the Lord's table, but any time. And if a brother is in need, you, you go and you help that person in need. We are the Lord's. We are the Lord's people. We ought to show a good spirit and a good nature because we have a new nature. Let us show it to the glory of Christ. Amen.